Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina. And today we're going to be talking about weddings and wedding dresses specifically. But this is an episode that's accompanying a video which was published on Monday. If all goes well, it was published on Monday. Please, dear God. Um, So... (laughs) I have already covered this topic, but I'm going to be adding some couple caveats. We're going to be talking about royal weddings. We're going to be talking about the bridezilla phenomenon. And we're going to be um, sharing some stories. So I usually ask for audience participation in these types of episodes. And for today's question, it's less of a question. It's tell me a story, a weird, funny story about a wedding you went to or a wedding that you know someone else went to. Because I was talking about this with one of my writers, Ella, and she helps me on the wedding script. And we were talking about our shared love for the Am I the Asshole Reddit thread. And so many of those stories that are so funny are wedding stories. It seems like there's always something that goes wrong at a wedding or something that goes absolutely bananas at a wedding and so I wanted to see if anyone had a personal story they would like to share with me. Because it's a story, I'm not going to be responding to it uh, in the way that in previous episodes I'll have asked a question, someone will answer and that will kind of like start our conversation just because I don't know. Like most of these, the ones that I picked, I just laughed at. So I don't really think I can offer anything (laughs) beyond that. But Yeah, we're going to talk about weddings because I love weddings. I actually am not sure if I am going to have my own because they're so ungodly expensive. And I've been having these kinds of conversations because I'm reaching that age in my life where uh, people are thinking about getting married. I feel like people actually start getting married like in their 30s, but the idea is in our heads, in our 20s, in New York City at least. And... I don't know. I think there are some people who really want to have a most fantastic time and they put in so much money to their wedding. For me, it's hard for me to justify spending a large amount of money on something that's only going to last me one day. And this is why until I started working my job now and I was working a minimum wage job and so I would always have to pick like do I want to spend more money on going to a nice restaurant this month or do I want to spend more money on buying something for myself this month and usually I would always buy something for myself because for me and this is actually one of my friends who quoted this too she was like food only lasts for that one meal and then you shit it out clothes last forever and I feel like that was so Carrie Bradshaw of her but like I really internalized that and so it goes against my spirit to spend lavishly on one experience that being said I have gotten wedding fever from stalking like the Vogue wedding section on their website. I don't know if anyone else like checks Vogue regularly, but uh, they have like a weddings tab where um, they'll cover like big celebrity weddings or they'll cover just like interesting weddings where the bridal dress is like really interesting. That's how I've found like a couple of my favorite wedding looks and wedding ideas was through the Vogue tab and it just made me think like oh what would I do if I had a dream wedding like what kind of dress I would wear what kind of party what kind of themed party would I want to throw if you know me I love themed parties for my birthday a couple years ago I threw like a Rococo Marie Antoinette party and that was a scandal all in itself because on TikTok I posted it and 
then a bunch of like teenagers started commenting being like oh like this is like rich people's shit and stuff and like berating my public park picnic like someone was like oh some of us don't have backyards this big and I'm like this is not my backyard this is literally a public park I went to Untermeyer Park which is an amazing park in Yonkers and I highly recommend trekking up there if you're in New York City if you live in Yonkers then good for you uh go there because it's amazing and my friend Amy she did my hair we all did our makeup together and she also doctored up the cake because someone else was like oh the cake is so fancy and it was this beautiful cake but she literally got it from the supermarket and scraped off all like the frosting made her own frosting and decorated it with like strawberries that she also got at the supermarket and it was beautiful and it tasted great and I don't know I'm really thankful having these friends I have in my life but it was definitely a discounted birthday party. (laughs) It was not high budget. It was not a high budget production. Needless to say, I do love throwing a party. I always get stressed throwing a party. And I think that's also part of the reason why I'd be hesitant on having my own personal wedding. And we'll talk about the bridezilla trope later, but I just get really stressed out. And I feel like hosting is a very stressful thing, even though it's supposed to be your day. I feel like I would just get like stressed out about people not having a good time or making sure that everyone's having a good time and it would prevent me from like really fully enjoying the expensive production of a wedding. I also think it's kind of cute to elope. I think eloping in Vegas is really fun. I've always thought that would be an interesting story. Um, Like I think Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas did a Vegas elopement and that was really chic. I don't know. Again, these are kind of my personal struggles, views, conversations I'm having with myself. I obviously don't hate on anyone who wants to throw a large wedding or anyone who doesn't want to get married at all. Like, I think it's very much like a personal choice what you decide to do with your own money and with your own relationship. Um, But yeah, these are just my views. I do love going to weddings. I will never turn down a wedding invite because I think that they're so much fun to go to as a guest. Other than the amount of money that you have to spend on a wedding present. But um, other than that, it is like usually a fun time. I love like wedding music. Um, Like, you know, I feel like the wedding DJs are always playing like cheesy pop songs from 2010s and I love that shit. If I don't hear Marry You by Bruno Mars, if there's no Bruno Mars on the wedding soundtrack, then am I at a wedding? Am I at a wedding? I also read this article recently that was really fun. Um, It was also kind of sad. It was a mixed bag. It was called The Fake Poor Bride Confessions of a wedding planner and it was published in the Atlantic and as the title states it's about um, a wedding planner it's her uh, personal story of some experiences she's had planning weddings there was like a quote in the article that talks about the institution of having an extravagant wedding and how a lot of people feel pressured to throw these crazy weddings and I mean I definitely don't blame anyone because I feel like growing up I was told at least through like media and news and everything that the wedding is supposed to be like the most magical moment in your life and so I don't blame anyone for falling into that pressure and wanting to feel like their wedding is going to be the best day of their life but I will say that that extra pressure probably leads a lot of people to spend more than they can on 
a big event. And in the article, it talks about how um, couples, like 30 to 45% of couples or something, are in debt because of their weddings, which is insane. So yeah, anyway, I wanted to do a video on wedding dresses in particular because, you know, fashion. And I thought it would be a good time because a lot of people get married in the spring, summer. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the wedding dress. I feel like... And I'm going to make up a statistic, so this might be wrong, but I feel like 99% of wedding dresses are white, in America at least. And I feel like the idea of like a white wedding dress is a very omnipresent thing in our culture. But that wasn't always the case. For much of Western history, brides just wore the best dress that they had in their closet. So it was usually a dress that they had worn before and probably a dress that they were going to wear again. Even in the case of Queen Victoria, who we'll talk about later for having set the precedent of the white dress trend, um, she would continue to wear her wedding wardrobe after her wedding to um, christenings for her children, for one of her portraits and for her son Leopold's wedding. So the earliest recorded instance of a white wedding dress in Western culture is that of English princess Philippa at her wedding to the Scandinavian King Eric in 1406. And she was dressed in a white tunic lined with ermine and squirrel fur. Research officer at Stockholm University, Mia Akistam, theorizes that Philippa's white wedding dress might indicate that the coronation ceremony took place in close connection to the wedding, as white was frequently used for coronations. Something that I learned also recently is that white dresses didn't symbolize virginity and purity until the Victorian era. Beforehand, a white wedding dress actually just symbolized status and wealth because they were costlier and harder to clean. So, you know, as I said, Queen Victoria's impact, white dresses didn't become a norm until her wedding in 1840. Victoria's wedding dress consisted of a tight-fitted bodice and a voluminous ball gown skirt, which sort of resembles the silhouette of the classic wedding dress we think of today. According to her biographer, Julia Baird, Victoria chose to wear white because it was the perfect color to highlight the delicate lace of her gown. She also requested that no one else wear white to the wedding, aside from her bridesmaids, also setting an etiquette precedent we still maintain today, where only the bride should be wearing white. Except now it's like, it extended past the bridesmaids. So now only the bride wears white and the bridesmaids usually can't wear white anymore either. <laughs> By 1849, women's magazines were already proclaiming that not only was white the best color for a wedding dress, but that it had in fact always been the best and most appropriate choice, leading to a bit of revisionist history that has affected my knowledge of wedding dresses until I started looking um, into the research for this video. For example, in August of that year, Godey's Ladybook published some revisionist history announcing that custom has decided from the earliest ages that white is the most fitting hue for brides, whatever may be the material. It is an emblem of the purity and innocence of girlhood and the unsullied heart she now yields to the chosen one. So as the obligatory white wedding dress spread from Western Europe and North America through colonization, missionary trips, and neocolonialism, brides across the world are now faced with the dilemma of whether to go for a more traditional uh, color choice or to participate in the white gown propaganda. For example, in China, where traditionally brides would wear a red wedding dress because red symbolizes luck and prosperity, some brides change into white dresses for official photographs. 
Japanese brides also often hire a white dress as one of several outfits to wear during the course of their marriage celebrations. And in Africa, particularly in urban areas and even some more pastoral ones such as the Franz Fontaine region of Namibia, it has become more and more common for weddings to be planned in the Western style. With a big white dress, the groom in a tuxedo, a rented expensive car, and bridesmaids and groomsmen in matching attire. So as I'm saying this, I do want to emphasize that there are still so many wedding traditions that differ across the globe and there are so many brides who choose to not go for a white wedding dress. Um, but I did want to bring up these examples to show how ubiquitous the concept of a white wedding dress has become since um, before the Victorian era where it was just sort of like a random fad choice. This is a written response I received. I went to my cousin's wedding back in the 2000s when I was around 10, and the bride was there in their late 20s. The couple met at a Texas college spring break trip. The bride, A, was very dramatic and superstitious. Somehow, her mom and her developed a theory that claimed pearls to be unlucky in a wedding because Princess Diana wore pearls at her wedding and went on to have a bad marriage and early death. The wedding went smoothly until a fake pearl accessory was discovered by the bride. A left her bouquet in the limo, so my sister handed it to her, but as she was handing it to her, A noticed that the pin keeping the ribbon secured around the bouquet had a pearl at the end of it. Mind you, this is just a classic sewing pin with a little fake pearl bead at the end. Certainly not a real pearl that someone like Princess Diana would don at her wedding, but nevertheless, a fake pearl was enough to cause a massive fit. A proceeded to freak out, crying, yelling at people, saying her marriage was ruined, and even telling her freshly betrothed husband that she hated him. My sister felt really awkward and bad that she helped trigger the freak out. Things calmed down, and the rest of the reception moved smoothly, although my family was cranky because they played crappy country music the whole time. <laughs> the next day, my sister and I were at the hotel pool, and we talked to one of A's bridesmaids, who was from Eastern Europe, where A and her family are from. We asked if the pearls were some cultural superstition we don't have in America, but her cousin had never heard of it being a custom there, so it was literally all made up from her and her mom. I don't know if they had weird internet conspiracy circles yet. This was my first wedding that I attended, and I also had to sleep on the hotel couch, which was infested with bed bugs. so my goodie bag was a bunch of itchy, scabby bites on my butt, which I was teased for. I saw A and my cousin at my brother's extravagant wedding this year for the first time in over a decade. It was strange. Also, I feel like something that I want to talk about in this episode that I didn't cover in the video is like the whole phenomenon of royal weddings. Like I mentioned a couple royal weddings that are really popular, but I want to unpack like the actual cultural significance of a royal wedding. So royal weddings were historically arranged affairs with political significance, um, reigning over love and marriage. The whole idea is you would pair two aristocratic toddlers together in a holy matrimony um, that would serve to join these uh, two different royal houses and help foster peace across political borders. As just a little example, um, Sleeping Beauty, when Prince Philip is technically supposed to be betrothed to Princess Aurora, though she has no idea and they just organically fall in love because it's Disney, but in like the first scene when she's like in her little baby cradle and Prince Philip is like looking over the cradle and he's like giving a big stink face because he's like whole ass seven years old and is like, oh my God, I have to marry a baby. Same. Which I guess no one actually talks about that age difference because grown up 
grown up, quote unquote, Aurora, when she's like pricking her finger, she's 16. And if Philip was like seven, he looks like he was like seven. Me judging a 2D animation, he looked seven. Um, they drew him like he was seven. And so that means he would be like in his 20s, scandalous, but I guess 14th century politics, right? We don't really care. Mm. Um, anyways, so a real life example is after the signing of a peace treaty between several European countries in 1713, Portugal and Spain confirmed their commitment to peace by exchanging princesses. So both countries brought a prince and princess to a decorated wooden bridge at their shared border and sealed their alliance with a double marriages. So the princesses would swap countries, essentially. In 1506, Habsburg Emperor Maximilian I of Austria and King Vladislas of Hungary and Bohemia struck this very complex royal marriage alliance. I'm going to try to say it, but it is a bit of a doozy trying to draw all the connections. Um, I feel like that meme from like It's Always Sunny where he's like standing in front of the, the board that has like tons of pins and images everywhere and he's trying to explain. This is literally going to be me. So according to the plan, Maximilian's grandson, Ferdinand, would marry Vladislas's daughter, Anna, and Ferdinand's sister, Mary, who was still a baby, by the way, would marry the child with whom Vladislas's wife was pregnant if it turned out to be a boy. Not sure what would happen if the baby turned out to be a girl, but luckily the baby turned out to be a boy. And even luckier, the babies both survived infancy and the marriages were sealed in 1515. 11 years later, Vladislav's son, now grown up, was killed in battle without leaving a male heir, and his Hungarian possessions fell to Ferdinand. The Habsburgs thus added a huge amount of territory to their realms, and Austria, Bohemia, and Hungary were united, staying together all the way up to the collapse of the Habsburg Empire at the end of World War I. Another example. <laughs> Over the 19th century, during her reign, Queen Victoria strategically married her children and grandchildren into royal houses all over Europe. And the hope was that they would build political alliances between Great Britain and these countries that they would marry into. And Victoria was kind of successful. She had nine children, and most of her children married into several important branches of European monarchy. She continued matchmaking with her 42 grandchildren, and seven ended up on royal thrones. I mean, yes, it's giving incest. It's giving an uh, incredible amount of inbreeding, but it kind of worked for a little bit. Um, but ultimately, her plan, her like European unification plan or whatever, ultimately backfired at the onset of World War I when her grandchildren's countries went to war with each other. Honestly, like... Reading about these kinds of like political events through the perspective of a family drama, like I can understand why that stupid anime, Hitalia, exists. If you don't know what Italia is, it was this anime that was really, really popular, but the full name was Axis Powers, Hitalia. So every character in that show was a country and they would kind of go through world events um, through interactions between characters as if like the countries were like personified as people and the major criticism towards that series was that it really made light of a lot of political issues by doing it especially because this was like a comedy and the main characters because it was Axe's powers 
were Germany, Japan, and Italy. Um, and, you know, it just kind of like, it it wasn't cute in the grand scheme. Also, they would have like conventions, you know, anime conventions. And like, there was like this really famous photo that was circulating around Tumblr like years ago, like 10 years ago, of these Italia cosplayers doing the Nazi salute. So, yeah, I think that's what happens when you... Um, Uwifi world history. Anyways, <laughs> so nowadays the purpose of a royal wedding is less about maintaining the peace between nations and more about maintaining a relationship between the royal family and the public and forging this shared national identity. Following World War I, this was like the time when royal weddings were first like staged as mass public events. And this period in history was marked by a lot of industrial unrest, economic instability, and elite concerns about the appeal of radical socialism to the newly enfranchised working class voters. And so to deal with this kind of like political turmoil tension, the royal household of Great Britain worked with the British media to stage royal weddings as exercises in nation building. The media presented these royal weddings as having an all-encompassing effect on the British public, which led to the temporary suspension of political divisions and social animosities in favor of a national unity centered on the happy couple. Specifically, the wedding of King George VI and Elizabeth Bowes Lyon in 1923 was made as public as possible to lift the nation's spirit. The wedding was not broadcast on radio and there was no TV, so instead uh, they erected stands on the street which had details of the procession um, published to ensure that as many people as possible could catch a glimpse of the royal couple in their open carriage. Queen Elizabeth II's wedding to Prince Philip in 1947 took this one step further. It was broadcast to 200 million listeners around the world via radio. But Great Britain isn't the only country to create spectacles around their uh, royal weddings. In Bhutan, the Dragon King, Jigme Kezar, uh, his wedding to Jetsun Pema, who is actually a woman with no royal connections, considered a commoner, quote-unquote, cost an estimated $17 million, but the whole country was invited to the party. The country declared a three-day holiday in honor of the marriage, um, for which the king provided a huge traditional lunch buffet for the public, along with music and dance performances. And on the fashion front, royal weddings, like any high-profile events, set trends that trickle down through the social classes. In the spring of 1956, Grace Kelly married uh, Prince Rainier III of Monaco, and their wedding would set trends among brides across the globe. And even preemptively, cosmetic brands knew the potential for this wedding's influence. So cosmetics company Max Factor and hosiery seller Willie's Demon, they actually both lied to the press that they had been commissioned to contribute to Grace Kelly's bridal look, I guess in hopes to raise their own sales in the aftermath of the wedding. For Princess Diana's wedding to then Prince Charles in 1981, her poofy wedding dress is well known to have set a trend of confectionery bridal gowns. But also, the sapphire blue ring she wore paved the way for future brides to skip the diamond as the center stone and opt for something with more of a pop. And in 2011, Kate Middleton's royal wedding gown caused spikes in online searches for wedding dress inspiration, as well as a fashion trend towards long lace sleeves. So I guess the elephant in the room that we have to address here, which I kind of did address a little bit, um, is weren't they all cousins? 
Are we celebrating royal incest? Is that what we're doing? Um, you, mm, <laughs> often in historical royal weddings, okay, the importance of protecting a royal bloodline or fostering diplomacy between nations dictated that the bride and groom must be closely related. There was a controversial study that was published in 2015 by the University of Zurich, which looked at the remains of ancient Egyptians, like royal ancient Egyptians, and suggested that incest was very common among pharaohs. Literary evidence also seems to confirm this. Uh, for example, Amenhotep I, one of the most famous of the kings of Egypt, was the product of three generations of sibling incest. Similarly, the boy king Tutankhamun, or uh, known colloquially as King Tut, he was the son of Akhenaten and was the product of a brother-sister relationship and later married his half-sibling, Akinson Patton. Cleopatra II was the product of a sibling union. And yes, if you're wondering if there were any problems that came up in the bloodline, the effects of multi-generational incest appear to have taken a toll on the royal family. King Tut suffered from a genetic bone disease, for instance. And in Europe, um, too much intermarriage among the royal families has led to the emergence of less than desirable physical qualities, including allegedly the Habsburg lip. And more seriously, the prevalence of the blood clotting disorder, hemophilia among descendants of Queen Victoria. If you're into Russian history, that's actually the disease that Tsar Nicholas II's son Alexei had, um, Anastasia's younger brother. If you're into like the 20th Century Fox and it made a movie, that movie definitely sparked an interest in Russian history for me. But yeah, he had this disease, this genetic disease, and that's the reason why um, Rasputin was around because he was like this medicine healer and he was like trying to help Alexei heal from hemophilia. He was also not the villain. I guess that, I don't even know if you can really say who's a villain in a political struggle, um, but he's not the reason for <laughs> the revolutionary storming the Winter Palace. That was just part of the movie. But yeah, he was there for Alexei. More recently, um, the crown prince Topoto Aukalala of Tonga and Sinaitakala Fakfanua married. They had a wedding and it was highly controversial because the bride and groom were a double second cousins. So both of the bride's parents were first cousins of the groom's father. The marriage was arranged by the prince's mother as under Tongan royal protocol, members of the royal family may only marry members of Tongan nobility to maintain the royal bloodline. If a royal marries a commoner, he is stripped of his title and royal estates, and so his children and any members further down the line are left with nothing. While this has always been tradition, not everyone in the community was thrilled. A leader of the Tongan community in New Zealand, Will Ilolahia, said many people in Tonga opposed the marriage but were reluctant to speak out. And he also told ABC Radio in the Tongan society, we don't have a word for cousins. Cousins are considered like brothers and sisters, which makes the um, situation more taboo for some people. The other question that a lot of people have when it comes to royal weddings is how much does it cost? Like who is paying for it? Are tax dollars paying for it? Well, in the U.S., right, we don't have a royal family, but it's traditionally considered that the bride's family has to pay for the wedding, which is boo, because 
there are like studies that say married women are actually unhappier than single women, but then married men are happier than single men. So uh, I feel like women are just constantly given the shorter end of the stick, right? But whatever. Traditionally, the bride's family pays. But would the bride's family pay if she's literally marrying a prince? That would be pretty gnarly, right? So when it comes to British royal weddings, brides of princes have historically been from incredibly wealthy aristocratic families themselves. So it's not like, you know, he's not like marrying a Cinderella, right? And that is why tradition once dictates that royal brides wear their own family jewels to the wedding. So for example, Princess Diana wore a Spencer family tiara at her marriage to Prince Charles. The Spencers can trace their roots back to the Tudors. And modern princesses, Kate and Meghan, both had to borrow bridal tiaras from the queen. But does tax money ever go to fund royal weddings? Um, the giant spectacles of the weddings of Prince William to Kate Middleton and Prince Harry to Meghan Markle were both paid for privately by the royal family. The only technically publicly funded element of these weddings was security. In 2018, the Press Association reported that policing costs for the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton were 6.35 million pounds including 2.8 million pounds for police overtime however the royal family's so-called personal money actually comes from a sovereign grant which is directly from the treasury so do with that information interpret that information with what you will that's not to say every royal wedding is expensive um one of the most romantic royal weddings to date was one of the cheapest Princess Mako of Japan actually gave up her title to marry a commoner in 2021. They were college sweethearts and waited until they both graduated from law school to marry. They tied the knot at a simple legal ceremony in blue suit jackets followed by a press conference. And this was highly controversial because, um, I mean, in American society, again, we don't have a royal family. So we, I feel like, don't really understand like the hoopla when it comes to caring about a rich monarch and all of that like I mean I don't understand it I think it's a little silly but um there was like widespread disappointment in Princess Mako's abdication from her title among Japanese citizens which kind of goes to show how important these rituals can be for the sake of national pride and identity I mean it's also one of the reasons why a lot of like British conservative racists were so against uh Prince Harry marrying Meghan because She's mixed race, she's a quarter black, she's American, um, and she's a divorcee. She was previously married. And uh, a lot of people take this unfairly in a serious way because they feel like her position in the royal family, which I think Carrie and her have kind of like left, but um, at the time her position like in the royal family says something about uh, the identity of British society and British cultural values. This is a written response I received. I have a really big, crazy family. My dad's cousin, we'll call her Sabrina, was getting remarried. I remember my family being invited to this wedding and everyone had no idea who the groom was. We arrived to the venue, my aunt's house. She lives on 10 acres with the house a little pushed back from the road. And to my surprise, they had set up the ceremony in the driveway, which is pretty close to the busy road. I started mingling with my cousins and we all waited for the ceremony to begin, which was to start at 5 p.m. By 8.30 p.m., we're all sick of waiting for the ceremony to begin. Some people start going to their cars, but the valet, my distant cousin, who I'd never met until that day, wouldn't give anyone their keys. 
So we were basically stuck here. Finally, we see Hippie Dan. That's his name. I'm not being mean. He tells everyone he's Hippie Dan. Hippie Dan is a family friend who's officiating the wedding. He isn't wearing shoes and is dressed in a linen shirt and tie-dye pants. He's also smoking a joint and is holding a machete. Finally, we see the groom, who looks like a super respectable guy. His family were so nice, but were definitely judging us. And honestly, I don't blame them. The music starts playing. Sabrina is coming down the aisle. She looks beautiful. The ceremony has finally started after almost four hours of waiting. Hippie Dan asks the groom, do you take Sabrina to be your shadow partner in this dimension and the other? I'm honestly not even surprised at this point. The groom says, I do. Hippie Dan looks at Sabrina and as he's asking her, a fucking motorcycle pulls up in the middle of the aisle. My cousins and I are trying so hard to hold in our laughter. The mystery person on the motorcycle gets off the bike, takes off the helmet. We have no clue who this is to this day. They sit down and the ceremony continues. Sabrina says, I do. And then they do the exchanging of the blankets, the sharing of the breath, which was them blowing into each other's mouths for three minutes. This was pre-COVID. And then they finish it off with the burning of the paper. They wrote hateful letters to each other and burnt them in front of us to prove that hate doesn't last in marriage as long as you, quote unquote, figure love out. I swear to you, this is a true story. I genuinely have no idea where Sabrina or her new husband are. No one has spoken to them since their wedding. My only question that still remains unanswered is why did Hippie Dan have a machete? So let's get into wedding dress trends because as we all know, there are so many different ways that a wedding dress can look like even if they're all white. And especially with all these bridal shops offering custom designs and custom alterations, there seems to be like a never-ending list of what a um, wedding gown can look like. So the elements a bride might choose to put onto her dress are influenced by so many factors. Current trends, family expectations, budgets, body types, not to mention their own tastes, which is given even more value with bridal dress propaganda always championing the idea that a bride must find her perfect dress. So... Let's backtrack. In the 19th century, bridal wear resembled styles popular for day wear, but at the beginning of the 20th century, during the Edwardian era and continuing through the interwar period, wedding gowns resembled evening wear in their design more so than day wear. Part of the reason for this shift towards evening wear is that day wear was becoming more practical, informal, and androgynous. So to really dress your best and to look your fanciest, you'd want your bridal dress to embody the formality and flair of an evening gown. In the 1920s, metallic lames, lace, pale gold, and shelf pink fabrics were fashionable for bridal and evening wear, giving wedding dresses added glamour. By the 1930s, wedding dresses fully resembled the sleek and sexy evening wear of the period, figure hugging and high necklines. You also see the beginnings of additional outfits for the bride. Nowadays, a lot of brides will choose to have like a rehearsal outfit and also a reception outfit that differ from like the main um, ceremonial outfit. But in the 1930s, if the family could afford it, because we are living in the Great Depression, so a lot of families could not afford a very nice wedding and like new gowns and whatnot. But if the family could afford it, then a bride would have an additional outfit on top of her um, ceremonial wedding dress. And this additional outfit would be like a leaving the wedding outfit because tradition was that the bride and groom after the reception would go straight to their honeymoon. So it was like her going to my honeymoon outfit. In the 1940s during World War II, young couples rushed to get married in mass before the men were drafted into the military. So in 1942, 1.8 million weddings took place in the U.S., which was up 83% from 10 years before. And two-thirds of those brides were marrying men newly enlisted. 
War rationing saw a dour shift in wedding attire, unfortunately. In 1943, UPI reported, If she's lucky, the June bride of 1943 may still find some fancy lingerie and nylon hose for her trousseau, but the trousseau itself will be far less extensive and the frou-frou garments much less frou-frou than in peacetime. Take shoes. Tradition says nothing but white satin will do, but no special shoe certificate will be granted the bride. OPA, Office of Price Administration, declares, If she is already used up her shoe stamp, she'll buy no new white satin footwear. In the UK, where rations were even stricter than in the US, Queen Elizabeth II married Philip Mountbatten in 1947 and bought the fabric needed to make her dress using clothing ration coupons. However, the government did give her an additional 200 extra coupons because she's the queen. Fashion historian Lydia Edward explains, The rationing instilled by World War II meant that for the seven-year period of conflict, the majority of brides again chose the best item of clothing in their wardrobe. Sometimes this could be as practical and austere as a suit, in keeping with the plain and neutral tone of a groom's military uniform. The practice of renting or borrowing more traditional styles of wedding dress became popular, and some brides took advantage of the best silk available to create a dream wedding dress. A woman named Eileen Stone married her husband Leslie Spencer in June 1940 in England, and she made her own wedding dress out of one of Leslie's parachutes. And then after the wedding, she repurposed her wedding dress um, so as to get the most use out of it. We love an upcycling thrifty queen. So she ended up cutting up the dress, dyeing it brown, and using it to line a coat. And she kept a piece of the undyed silk to make an embroidered handkerchief. She also dyed a piece of the parachute cord and used it to bind a wedding album she'd made. The other pieces of cord were kept and used regularly for family camping trips. In the 1950s, the political and aesthetic focus on conservatism and tradition saw a return to the classic bridal silhouette of Queen Victoria, only with a slightly lifted hem. On top of that, a dearth of celebrity weddings and movies about weddings reinforced a very uniform wedding dress choice. For example, Elizabeth Taylor's wedding dress in the film Father of the Bride had a huge influence on the decade's bridal trends. Another big celebrity, Grace Kelly, had a wedding ensemble gifted from her studio, MGM, that was designed by Academy Award-winning costume designer Helen Rose, who had created the star's wardrobe for four films, including High Society and The Swan. The dress was made of silk fail and antique Brussels lace embellished with pearls. Another romantic and feminine dress was the one that Jackie Kennedy wore to her wedding with John F. Kennedy in 1953. I'm not someone who really loves the voluptuous princess style gown. I feel like personally on me because I'm so petite, um, those kind of silhouettes like really swallow me, but I think Jackie Kennedy, like this is one of my favorite wedding gowns of all time. I think she looks so, so good. And I love the details in the skirts. It's, it's delicious. The changing socio-political landscape in the 1960s led to increased variation among wedding dresses. As society increasingly valued free-spirited youthfulness, shorter and trendier dresses rose in popularity over the classic and simple. For example, actress Sharon Tate took the 60s miniskirt trend to new levels when she walked down the aisle in a high-collared baby doll dress in 1968. And Eurovision pop singer Lulu wore a fur-trimmed, full-length hooded coat to her wedding to BG singer Maurice Gibb in 1969. Priscilla Presley got her wedding dress off the rack, though there are contrasting reports on whether or not she actually liked the dress. She found the dress herself at a Westwood department store and said, It wasn't extravagant. It wasn't extreme. It was simple and, to me, beautiful. I didn't have time to stay there forever and look at dresses. I had one fitting for this dress, and that was it. 
I was out of there. However, an alleged insider told tabloid magazine Closer Weekly, Priscilla doesn't talk about it much, but she wasn't a huge fan of that dress. She loved the veil and her makeup, but the dress wasn't as shapely as she would have liked. I don't think she saved it. Either way, Priscilla's closer to heaven hairdo and ultra mod cat eye makeup definitely reflected her modern sensibilities. The era of fun, unique, tradition-bucking wedding dresses continued into the 1970s. In 1971, for instance, socialite Bianca Perez Mora Macias wore an Yves Saint Laurent bridal two-piece suit to her wedding with Mick Jagger. But in the 1980s, the highly traditional and materialistic Thatcher-Reagan conservatism led to a more traditional bridal revival. Brides walked down aisles in lavish and super covered up gowns, usually with larger than life puff sleeves and bodices that mirrored 1950s silhouettes. None of them was as memorable as Princess Diana's though. The puffy sleeves and long train on Princess Diana's taffeta wedding dress played into the decade's more is more approach to fashion. Mariah Carey was even influenced by Diana and Charles' extravagance um, with her own wedding. Vera Wang, who designed Mariah Carey's dress, explained to Insider, Mariah wanted that level of pomp and circumstance and romance and volume. She really wanted a princess look, and it was just one of those weddings that was truly a fairy tale in the sense of scale. In the late 90s, more and more high fashion designers began designing wedding dresses at this time as well, such as Gianni Versace and Karl Lagerfeld for Chanel. Vera Wang, as I mentioned, opened her bridal boutique in 1990, and by 2000, she was one of the top wedding dress designers. And while her look for Mariah was very confectionery, she became known for designing strapless and spaghetti strap dresses. The strapless gown actually rose to prominence to mirror the minimalist taste of the era and has remained the dominant sleeve style ever since. Kate Berry, the style director for Martha Stewart Weddings, recently estimated for Salon that 75% of all the wedding dresses out there nowadays are of the strapless variety. A major wedding of the 90s era that cemented the simplistic style was that of John F. Kennedy Jr. and Carolyn Kennedy. Of Carolyn's dress, former Harper's Bazaar editor-in-chief Kate Betts, who at the time was working at Vogue, said, We were a generation that grew up watching Diana get married on TV in 1981 in that iconic wedding dress. In 1996, it was still a pretty iconic wedding dress. Vera Wang and Carolyn Herrera were simplifying their designs, but not as simple as a slip dress. Carolyn's dress was revolutionary in that sense, that someone would wear something that simple. It crystallized the minimalism trend in fashion. That was her aesthetic, and her wedding dress was a very, very bold expression of that minimalism. In 2018, when Meghan Markle and Prince Harry tied the knot, Meghan wore a few dresses, including a minimal Stella McCartney gown. Meghan told Harper's Bazaar that she was heavily inspired by Carolyn's wedding gown for her own look. So, as you can see, there's been a long, long history of the wedding dress and how it's transformed across the decades in color, but also in style. And I'll talk about my favorite dresses um, throughout history at the end of this video, so. But first, I wanna talk about the wedding industrial complex because I feel like no wedding dress video can be complete without talking about uh, the pressure that a lot of brides feel when navigating their weddings. So until the 20th century department store model of clothing shopping, a bride in search of a wedding dress would have the garment custom made by a designer, a family member, or even herself. Today, when most brides begin their hunt for a gown, they do not start by consulting a designer or a sewist, but by visiting a bridal boutique and trying on already made gowns with the expectation that they will be custom tailored later. The shift from bespoke to made to order or even made to measure is in large part thanks to the explosion of bridal focused boutiques in post-war America. For example, 
1934, Mrs. Eva Becker of the Becker Department Store in Michigan started in the wedding gown business almost by accident. She purchased a gown in Chicago for her niece, and her selection proved so popular, she soon had many requests from other brides. Another popular bridal boutique, I. Kleinfeld & Son, as it was formerly known, was a family business, a fur shop, started by Isidore Kleinfeld in 1941. His daughter, Hedda Schachter, known as Miss Hedda, and her husband, Jack Schachter, known as Mr. K, expanded the Kleinfeld business into one of the largest and most famous upscale bridal emporiums in the world. It's also the same bridal salon where Say Yes to the Dress is filmed. Patricia Lee Brown, writing in the New York Times in 1987, described it as a store that is to wedding gowns, what the Pentagon is to fighter bombers. So in the late 60s, when Hedda and Mr. K first started their expansion, wedding dresses were mostly limited variations on themes found in department stores and small boutiques. It was Miss Hedda's innovation, noting the changing appetites of the times, to offer as many styles as possible, which she traveled the world to find. Another major bridal shop, David's Bridal, was founded by David Riceberg in 1950 as a single bridal shop in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The company was later purchased and expanded under new owners Philip Udy and Stephen Erlbaum. In the early years, David's Bridal operated as both a boutique and a warehouse, where a bride could get a designer-like dress on the cheap. UT told the South Florida Sun Sentinel in 1991, We get people who are getting married in two weeks and just don't have the time for all of that. From designers dropping bridal looks in their couture collections to bridal shops exclusively selling bridal dresses, the highly specialized bridal gown industry has convinced legions of women everywhere that this gown is going to be the most important clothing purchase of their entire life. And it didn't help that the media also um, supported this message. During this decades-long wedding craze, movies about weddings increasingly focused on the importance of the gown. One of the worst gaffes caused by Ben Affleck's character in the 2000 comedy of errors, Meet the Parents, was when he brings home a stray cat painted to look like the lost family pet, who destroys the bride's dress. In the 2013 comedy Bridesmaids, the character Lillian, played by Maya Rudolph, is engaged to be married, and naturally, her wedding gown is a big topic of conversation. Eventually, she and her friend Helen, played by Rose Byrne, fly to Paris to get the perfect dress made, causing drama between her and maid of honor Annie, played by Kristen Wiig. But disaster strikes when the dress doesn't end up how she imagined, and the abundance of layered fabric on the skirt and sleeves looks tacky rather than elegant. In general, almost every rom-com of the era that ends with a wedding emphasizes the importance of the gown. Usually, the camera slowly pans up the bride's body as if through the point of view of the groom, letting the audience really see every detail of the dress, with fairy tale esque instrumental music playing in the background. I also grew up watching and re-watching The Parent Trap, um, the remake of The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan a lot when I was a kid. It was one of my favorite movies of all time, taste. And there was one scene in that movie, okay, there were lots of scenes, but there was also one of those lots of scenes that I remember that are very memorable to me in the movie was just like the magical scene of Hallie meeting her mom for the first time. Her mom is Elizabeth James, played by Natasha Richardson, who I love, um, rest in peace. But I feel like I thought she was literally Princess Diana. Like I was too young, or I think, did Princess Diana die before I was born? Anyway, I had no connection with Princess Diana. Natasha Richardson in The Parent Trap was my Princess Diana. 
So Natasha plays Elizabeth, who is a wedding dress designer, a famous wedding dress designer. And she takes Hallie, who's Lindsay Lohan, into her bridal shop. And they do all these like fun photo shoots. And they're playing with the veils and hats. And I think that even though neither of them were brides in this particular moment looking for their perfect dress, which, you know, I'm happy for because Lindsay Lohan was like 11 years old in that movie. A scene like that really adds to the blissful magic we've been culturally driven to feel towards wedding dresses, um, especially because this movie, like it's like a family movie and it's a movie that I watched as a kid all the time. And it kind of like indoctrinated me young about like the whole magic of weddings and marriage and everything. So um, it was very like anti-divorce, <laughs> that movie, considering the parents get back together. But yeah, love that movie. Love wedding dresses. <laughs> But yeah, on top of the movies, the popularity of reality TV also played its part in the bridal wear boom. Shows like Say Yes to the Dress, Don't Tell the Bride, and Big Fat Gypsy Weddings all increased our interest in what it takes to put on a very special day, often with a gown as a be-all and end-all focus. However, on top of all the custom designs, on top of the expectations for a second or third wedding outfit, the costs rack up. And according to the Not Real Wedding Study, which surveyed nearly 12,000 couples who got married last year, the average wedding dress cost in 2022 was $1,900. They also found that buying a new dress remains the most popular option for to-be-weds, with 93% purchasing a new design. I mean, part of the reason why brides and families are shelling out all this money for expensive gowns is because of how crazy these salespeople are when they're selling you a dress. As Bridget Maloney wrote for Slate, you think you've met obsequious salespeople in the past? Trust me, the bridal salon staff will take you to a whole new level. It's all very, oh mom, oh, she looks like a doll, doesn't she? Are you going to cry? Bridget, don't you just love it? You look so incredible. Every time, every dress. The extra fanfare for a wedding is also probably in some way influenced by the growth of social media because the idea is that the more rituals and events that you have, the more opportunities to photograph and video to put onto uh, Instagram and TikTok. And in turn, the extra visibility towards these wedding ceremonies convinces others that they also have to go to the same levels of production as the people that they see online are doing. Hi Nina. So one of my family members got married a few years ago and the officiant who was a uh, preacher um, talked about how, you know, in love you should really sweat the small things. You should really focus on the little things. And to illustrate that point, he proceeded to describe in detail the explosion of the Challenger space rocket. During the ceremony, the preacher talked about the explosion of the Challenger space rocket. No one knew what to do. Okay, thanks. Okay, so I feel like I also need to talk about the Bridezilla because <laughs> this is like a big cultural phenomenon, right? Like everyone has heard about this term. I think there was even a reality TV show called Bridezilla. But if you don't know, the term Bridezilla is basically a portmanteau of Bride and Godzilla. And Godzilla is this giant lizard-like sea monster from the 1954 Japanese film Godzilla, which, you know, is not a nice thing. It's, you don't want to be compared to Godzilla. But the term Bridezilla emerged in 1995 in a newspaper article in the Boston Globe to explain the uh, concept of a demanding bride. 
And the term bridezilla is still popular today, even though, you know, we've made some strides. Some, not all, not a lot, but some strides in uh, feminist uh, reframing. But um, all over the internet, all over TV, to this day, there's so much bridezilla content, so many bridezilla stories. There's reaction videos on TikTok and YouTube. There's Reddit pages. There are just like tons of movies and reality TV shows like uh, Don't Tell a Bride and Bride Wars. Even when it's not the subject explicitly of the show, bridezilla stories are also popular to create drama in wedding media overall. And there's a lot of common like anecdotes when it comes to uh, a bridezilla and all of her misbehaviors. A lot of Bridezilla stories highlight like fat phobia or eating disorder behavior in the sense of how like they're super controlling over the wedding menu or um, going to weigh-ins and having like gold dress sizes. A lot of Bridezilla stories feature a racist bride uh, with the bride rejecting guests and bridesmaids who have um, natural protective hairstyles who don't fit in with the photos they want to take homophobia, transphobia, so not inviting queer couples and partners. There's actually a story on Reddit that I saw a little bit ago on the Am I the Asshole page, and it was this guy who was talking about his sister getting married and how she didn't want his husband in the photos because she wanted the photo to be like boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, and she didn't like that with her brother and his husband in the photo, it'd be like, boy, girl, boy, 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 girl. You know, like something stupid like that that is homophobic at the end of the day. Other bridezilla stories, they disinvite pregnant bridesmaids or bridesmaids with disabilities or long-term illnesses. For example, there was like a bridesmaid who was kicked out of a wedding party due to hair loss from chemotherapy. Um, Sometimes they'll request free services from distant friends or freelancers. So, you know, photographers, hair, makeup artists, DJs, etc. Sometimes they'll have like unreasonable financial expectations for dresses, gifts, and destination events. And there's also like purity culture that sometimes plays into it with some brides rejecting wedding party members who have had premarital sex or who were born out of wedlock. So there's a long list of crazy things that brides have asked for or have demanded. But I feel like there's enough media, right, about the bridezilla. And I think what's more important to ask is what creates a bridezilla to begin with. You know, as I've said before, weddings are very expensive. In 2022, the national average cost of a wedding was about $30,000. And usually for a lot of people, it's the most expensive event of their lives. And so it's not really surprising that something so expensive would cause a lot of stress for people to plan. And, um, It's also no surprise that with a super expensive event that's like, you know, framed in the media and in our culture as like so significant, like people would also have high expectations for what they want out of the wedding. There's also like the ever expanding aesthetic expectations that play into it. So with social media, people are thinking about Instagrammability or like whether or not their photos, their wedding could end up on Pinterest which um, adds another type of pressure onto having like a very aesthetically beautiful wedding. Uh, There's also like the whole body issue that I talked about with like a lot of brides feel pressure to go on diets, to fit into smaller wedding dresses, hiding any like problem areas. And that's like really a problem within our culture that is um, something that's expected for women to uh, do. 
And then there's also just like the whole organization of it. So if you're coordinating with a venue, florist, caterers, bakers, staging equipment rentals, photographer, hair, makeup artist, DJ, band, officiant, transportation. And if you don't have a wedding planner to do it, or if you can't afford a wedding planner to do it, then usually that job falls to the women of the family. And then also there's the stress of coordinating families because not everyone has a family that gets along. And so making sure that uh, people are sitting where they need to, where um, managing ways to keep the peace, being pressured even before the wedding to invite people that they don't like, balancing everyone's opinions because let's be honest, family members will say the most opinions unfiltered. Um, so that can that can add on a lot. And then on top of that, as I, you know, as I mentioned, like a lot of wedding festivity organizing planning is viewed as being a woman's job. Jilly Kay, who's a lecturer in media and communication at the University of Leicester, she has said, it's not just project management in terms of running this multifaceted event, but all the emotional labor that goes into it, negotiating complex family politics and making sure that everybody's happy. The trope of the bridezilla says more about how we view women's work. It's part of the way we don't value the kind of emotional labor women are doing all the time. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the bridezilla kind of breeds this misogynistic um, narrative because it's an insult. You would never call a nice person a bridezilla. And I think a lot of women also have this fear of being labeled a bridezilla. Um... As Amin Saner writes for The Guardian, the trope of the bridezilla does a lot of ideological work in trying to keep women in their place. Kelsey McKinney wrote for The New York Times, the term has been thrown out very early in the planning process as an apparent warning to a bride-to-be who is showing early signs of simply making her needs or preferences known. And Julie Kay says, we get a slew of news stories about out-of-control brides making ridiculous demands. And I think what it tells us more about is not that there is an epidemic of hysterical bridezillas, but that our culture is really uncomfortable with the idea of women having power and also women being angry. It speaks to this deep anxiety we seem to have with women who assert themselves. And then writer and feminist Joan Smith says about it. The term bridezilla brings together a number of things, which is a rather old-fashioned idea of femininity, women apparently behaving in a trivial way, and also being assertive. Those things together are always very easy to set up as a target. There's also the irreconcilable idea that women are not supposed to seek attention while also being the center of attention on their wedding day. And so it's like a double-edged sword. I don't even know if that's the right term. But it's like a dual pressure, right? Yeah, it's a dual pressure. As a bride, you have the pressure to perform actual labor. So the actual organization of the wedding itself, because, you know, your husband's not going to do it for you usually. And then also the emotional labor of doing all of the labor with a smile because you don't want to be labeled as a bridezilla. You don't want to be seen the butt of a joke. You don't want to be insulted around your big day. And I think it's a really grating thing that is super unfair especially when you consider that like yeah grooms just never face these problems there's no such thing as a groomzilla i mean there's a british reality tv show called don't tell the bride which is when the groom takes on all the wedding planning to surprise his wife-to-be but writer amin saner says about it the show only works because we take it as a given that is the woman who should really be organizing their wedding when a groom on the show is throwing a tantrum or making impossible demands of his best man nobody suggests he's becoming a monster 
And in general, like men who are assholes are usually not uh, criticized the same way. A lot of men are told from like childhood that they actually need to be assholes to be able to get things in life. I mean, again, not to bring in, not to beat a dead horse and bring in succession again, but like I'm still on the first season and in the first season, Logan Roy, who's like this like old patriarch of the company, the way that he talks to people is super demeaning, super insulting. But then when his son tries to be like kind, he's like seen as like a wuss. And I think that just like illustrates how a lot of men operate in society. They're allowed to be assholes. They're allowed to be the worst people and they still somehow get some kind of modicum of respect and it's unfair. And I don't want to say that there are no brides who are terrible to their guests who are racist or homophobic, transphobic, unaccommodating to an insane degree, expecting way too much than uh, what they actually need. I'm not saying that at all. Like there are tons of stories, especially on Am I the Asshole, that showcase how weddings can bring out the worst in a bride. But I will probably say that she's probably been like that her whole life. Like it's not because of just this wedding that she decided to be racist, you know? So I'm not for like not holding. Okay, wait, let me not do a double negative. Okay, I am for holding women accountable. But I think using the term like bridezilla, it's infantilizing, it's villainizing, it's dismissive. And it usually is used to weaponize against a woman who was just simply trying to get her needs met, who is just simply trying to organize something that is very stressful without uh, the assistance that she needs. And with all the hoopla, the propaganda to have like the most perfect wedding of your life, um, I don't think any of us should be really surprised that some brides start to have unreasonable expectations and uh, start cracking under the pressure of not being able to fulfill those expectations. This is a written response I received. Hi Mina, I'm Turkish and in weddings here the guests give valuable gifts to the bride and groom. It is called taki takmak. The, I, I feel like I butchered that, sorry. <laughs> the gifts are usually money, jewelry, and especially gold. These gifts are given to the couple as they stand in the center of the wedding venue and people stand in a queue. And if the bride has a sister, the sister holds all the gifts to give them to the couple when the ceremony ends. I wanted to give this information as it is important for the context of the story. The story is not from a wedding that I've been to, but a relative of mine told me the story and I was pretty shocked. So... About three years ago, my relative's neighbor was getting married, and her boyfriend at the time was always around, so my relative knew the couple very well, and the bride had a sister, and she was also always around this couple, always as a third wheel. My relative thought that the sister had a crush on the guy, but she did not want to tell anyone because the guy did not share any interest towards her, and also the sister was a lot younger than the couple. The guy was 32, the bride was 30, and the sister was 21. When the wedding day arrived and the gift-giving ceremony was over, the sister was collecting all the valuable gifts. The groom and the sister was then nowhere to be seen. The bride was looking for them and she found a letter that was from her sister. She wrote in that letter, I'm really sorry for doing this, but I was in love with your boyfriend from the very beginning of your relationship and I told him that I loved him and our feelings were mutual. I could not do this face to face. The officiant was not real and your marriage is not official. We are going to get married and go to a different country. Please do not come after us. <laughs> she stole all the jewelry. It was probably around 200,000 Turkish liras and they did not hear from the sister or the boyfriend ever since. 
This was a shocking story to hear, to say the least, but stealing these golds and gifts from the wedding are not unusual in Turkey. Not like this, of course. If you share this, please keep it anonymous. <laughs> Depictions of wedding dress shopping from Sex in the City to Say Yes to the Dress portray a grand and emotional moment of certainty when a bride first dons the dress. And finding the perfect dress is almost like talked about as this like mythical phenomenon. Like you'll just know when you have it on whether it's the dress for you, which can feel like a lot of pressure and almost like an insane impossibility for a bride to achieve. And even though I spent like a big chunk of this episode talking about how um, a lot of brides will go all out and they'll spend tons of money on their weddings, um, that's not always the case. And to counter all those like statistics that I pulled, like David's bridal is going out of business. <laughs> Well, I don't want to be too presumptuous because they filed for bankruptcy in April and said that they would have to close their doors if they can't find a buyer. In the filing, Chief Executive James Markham wrote that increasing number of brides are opting for less traditional wedding attire, including thrift wedding dresses. And then Mr. Markham said in an email, this is the year of the bride on a budget and we're doing everything we can to meet her with her dream dress at every price point. And I think especially now with like dire economic times afoot and just like a decreased importance in weddings in general in this country, people will start shifting towards more budgety weddings. And I think the weddings that we're going to see that are still very expensive are the ones that are hosted by very rich people and who do get those like Vogue write-ups. I'd be interested to know what you all have experienced with um, wedding planning within your own local communities or with your own weddings. Do you feel like people are still as gung-ho about throwing like tons of money or if they're going like a more budgety, thrifty route. Let me know about it. But before we close, I do want to share a couple of my favorite wedding dresses ever, um, just because I thought it would be fun. So these are in no particular order though, but starting off super strong, Cher's dress when she married Greg Allman. Their marriage famously lasted for seven days, and there's not a lot of photos of the wedding on the internet, but the dress that she was wearing was so, so beautiful. I'm in general partial to figure hugging dresses, and I love the lacing corset detail at the bodice and the lace paneling in the skirt. It's just the right amount of embellishment. I wish I knew who the designer was, and I wish I had like a more high-res photo to look at, but just from what I can see, I think this dress is stunning. I also trust Cher's taste. I think she's always had really good style, but especially her looks in the 70s, I'm obsessed with all of them. Cher also modeled a Bob Mackie wedding look in 1982 for the Night of 100 Stars runway show, and she ate it up. It's definitely not a choice that everyone will agree with. I can admit this is like a very polarizing option, and I don't know if I would ever wear something this crazy for a wedding, but I think it's just very unique, and um, I love the theatricality of it. Okay, next dress, obviously you have to go with a classic. The wedding dress that Audrey Hepburn wears in Funny Face lives in my head rent-free. It's designed by Givenchy. I just love the bateau neckline, the drop waist, and the raised hemline. I feel like it would only work for someone who was on the taller side, which is why it works for Audrey so well, because where the full skirt hits her ankles, it's like very strange proportionally, and I feel like... If it was on me, it would make me look really short, but it looks really elegant on her. And, and I think it's super simple, like there's no real embellishments on it, but the silhouette and the shaping of it makes it one of a kind. More recently, I've been obsessed with Vogue editor Tish Weinstock's dress. Um, she had three dresses for her 
wedding ceremony but I love the first one that she wore the most she was wearing fall 2009 John Galliano and removed the lining to make it sexier and styled it with vintage Dior shoes and a 30s style veil she also had her hair done with these long Morticia Adams like extensions and her wedding took place in Belvoir Castle on Halloween to add to the gothic vibes of it all honestly this wedding is like my dream wedding because I love themed parties and I feel like this was just like a massive themed party and if you see any of the photos of her guests they're all dressed up too and I think it's just like it would just be a super fun affair I also love stylist Rachel Rogers reception look she got married in Naples and changed into a bikini adorned with floral appliques by Adriana Hot Couture and is very reminiscent of this Yves Saint Laurent look from 1999 she accessorized the bikini with silk opera gloves that had matching appliques and a pair of flats she found for $20 in Italy that wouldn't hurt her feet to dance in. In general, I really love like a risque um, bridal look because I feel like it's less expected and it's definitely done less. Um, I feel like weddings still are a pretty conservative affair and so anyone who goes outside of the box, I just think they're so cool. I think my favorite bridal look of all time actually is um, this Valentino Couture 1994 gown. It's literally so fucking beautiful. Okay, I feel like it's very confectionery, particularly in the skirt, but it's still very sexy because of this corset bodice situation on the top. And then I love like the veil that's kind of like wrapped around her head like a hood. It's all just very beautiful. I love like the poofing in the middle and the tears for the skirt and the flower appliques. It is a stunning dress, okay? It is a stunning dress. Okay, guys, that's all I have for today. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Um, and I'll see you next week. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. If you want to keep up with updates, you can follow the Highbrow Instagram. It's highbrow.pod. Highbrow is brought to you by Mina Lay. Today's episode was written in collaboration with Mina, Sophie Carter, and Ella Gray. The podcast is edited by Sophie Carter, music by Olivia Martinez, cover art by Lindsay Mintz, and is part of the Audio Boom Network. Mm-hmm.